Let's go ahead and pray before we uh, open up God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be messengers for you. Thank you, Father, for working in uh, our lives to uh, understand the gospel and, and come to know you as Savior and Lord and the privilege that we have, therefore, to share that message with others. Uh, it is a task that, humanly speaking, would be impossible. And yet, it is possible because you save and you equip your messengers to take your message. And help us, Father, to be encouraged and challenged about that responsibility as we look at your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, but uh, before we read there this morning, I just wanted to uh, talk about the idea of being a messenger. Uh, in this day and age, we are spoiled in how easy it is to get a message to somebody. In fact, uh, some of you might be reading messages right now that you're getting from people if you're not paying attention, because we have a phone that can allow us to communicate instantly. Uh, but this privilege is really a new privilege for the vast majority of the world's existence. People did not have such a privilege, and they relied upon human effort to take messages great distances to communicate. And we, we see uh, and we're, we've heard stories of battles where uh, messages needed to be taken to people and Certainly, as Americans, we're familiar with the importance of Paul Revere and the message that he t brought that the British were coming to prepare for, for their arrival. Uh, imagine, though, if Paul Revere did not take that message. If people did not know the enemies were coming, they wouldn't have been prepared. It could have been a very, very different outcome, right? So a messenger in that situation is incredibly incredibly important and though we do have technology today it is still an obligation of God's children to be his messengers and we're going to read this morning as we look at second Corinthians chapter 2 about how Paul was a messenger for God and how he took the gospel message and we're going to see some responsibilities that are involved with preaching the gospel so the focus here is really going to be upon Paul and what he went through and what he did uh, as a messenger of the gospel. But I believe there's principles we'll see that will help us as well in thinking about our responsibility to take the gospel. So let's go ahead and look at 2 Corinthians. We're going to read verses 12 to 17, and that will be our focus this morning. So it says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, 
not, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So we, we've been talking about 2 Corinthians and some of the things that happen in the background to help us understand what happened here. And one of the things, again, I wanted to mention is that Paul had written a letter to uh, the Corinthians. Uh, we have 1 Corinthians, but we also understand he wrote another letter that came between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And some of the events here that he's dealing with are in response to that letter he wrote in between and the coming of Titus. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, I just want you to understand, Paul is talking about his role as a messenger and how he is sharing the gospel, and therefore we can learn many things from what uh, we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. So I want you to notice, first of all, that he has the important responsibility as a messenger of the gospel of trying to advance the gospel. Notice in verse 12, it says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. So Paul is here doing outreach in Troas. That is, he is there for the purpose of the gospel. We understand from the Great Commission. A part of the Great Commission is that we are to take the gospel message um, both locally as well as throughout the world, the uttermost parts of the world. We're we as a church are to be involved in spreading the gospel, and that's what Paul was doing here. He is doing outreach. He is there for the purpose of the gospel. The idea is he is there sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with unbelievers. He is there to win people to Christ or, in the language of the Great Commission, to make disciples. He is seeking people to come to Christ. He is sharing the gospel, and we know about Paul if you read Romans 15, 20, that his focus as an apostle was to take the gospel to places where Christ wasn't named. So he was a pioneering missionary. He took the gospel to places where Christ wasn't known, and uh, he is um, involved in doing such a work here at Troas. So he is doing outreach um, with the purpose, eventually, of establishing a church. See, the, the goal was not just to win people to Christ, but ultimately to make and then mature disciples. That's the Great Commission. Uh, he is working to share the gospel so that people will come to know Christ and then follow him in obedience. And he was engaged in that process. Now, just for a visual help, I wanted to share with you where... Troas is, and it kind of matters for the story because of some things he says. So Paul, uh, we believe, was at Ephesus, went to Troas, and that's where he is preaching the gospel. So this would be, I believe that's modern-day Turkey, um, so the uh, western edge here of Asia. So he's in Troas, and what's going to happen is he says he has to leave Troas, and he's going to Macedonia with the idea of eventually... Um, trying to meet Titus, who was coming from Corinth. Um, that's uh, what he's uh, describing as happening here in verses 12 and 13. So Paul is there. He is sharing the gospel for the intention of establishing a church in Troas. Um, and we, uh, we believe through uh, uh, Book of Acts and uh, details we see there that that eventually was successful. But Paul is there, engaged in outreach, sharing the gospel as a messenger 
of God taking the gospel. And we see also that the opportunities were good. Notice it says in verse 12 that Paul had an open door. It says an open door for me in the Lord. In other words, that, that would seem to indicate that he is able to share the gospel, that people are listening to the preaching of the gospel, and that there is people trusting Christ and they are having some success on their mission of trying to get a church established. So Paul is engaged in outreach. He is engaged in the advancement of the gospel. But we're going to see how Paul doesn't just stay in Troas. He's actually concerned about the Corinthians. But before I jump into verse 13, just wanted to make some applications to ourselves. This is not only an obligation for apostles or even pastors and missionaries and evangelists, but actually all of us should be engaged in advancing, advancing the gospel. We all, as believers in Jesus Christ, should be able to share what God has done in our lives and tell other people about that. It may not be that you go to foreign countries and do it, but all of us should be able to share with what others what God has done in our lives. Some people have said, well, I don't know how to preach or I don't know how to uh, walk somebody through being saved. Well, just uh, give your testimony. How did you come to know Christ? We all should be able and should be engaged in the advancement of the gospel. And that should also mean prayer. We should be actively involved in praying for those who need Christ. Being a messenger of the gospel means working for its advancement. Paul was actively doing that. He is a noteworthy example of sharing the gospel uh, as an example for all of us. But of course, he was an apostle, had a special role, but all of us should be involved in the advancement of the gospel. But notice that in spite of this opportunity Paul had here in Troas, there was a problem on Paul's mind. And this is why the rest of the story, the background, helps us understand what was going on. Paul says in verse 13 that he had no rest for his spirit. Why was that the case? And that's uh, going to my second point here is that Paul had an affection. He had a concern, a loving concern for those who had come to Christ. And specifically in this case, it's the Corinthians that he's concerned about. Um, Paul says that he had no rest in his spirit, so he had some anxiety. In spite of this open door, this opportunity to preach the gospel and people responding to it, there was still a concern that wasn't resolved. And what is that concern? He says here that he did not find Titus. So we have the absence of Titus. What's, what's the point here? The point is Titus was the one who took that letter that came between 1st and 2nd Corinthians to the Corinthians. So they had agreed to meet in Troas, and so Paul is ministering there, and yet he doesn't see Titus. So what's he thinking? He's thinking there must have been severe problems in Corinth, so much so that Titus couldn't get out of there quickly, he had to stay longer, Therefore, Paul's even growing more concerned about the Corinthian church. 
So Paul has a concern for the church in Corinth. This also is addressing, if you remember, how Paul said to them earlier that he isn't fickle just changing his plans without careful consideration because he had talked about coming to see them. Um, And here again, he's defending himself. Uh, Part of what he's saying here is he was doing the work of the ministry here And yet his plans had to change because of his concern for the Corinthians. Even though he didn't come himself, he had sent Titus. And his failure to meet up with Paul caused him some concern about what might be happening in Corinth. So Paul is greatly concerned about the disciples in Corinth. And therefore he alters his plans. So... I I would like to draw another principle here that we could apply to our own lives in thinking about evangelism and discipleship and the Great Commission. There's been a problem with some kinds of churches in our circles, in our broader fundamentalist circles. Uh, I'm not sure if you've run into this, but because I know your previous pastor didn't preach this way, but some pastors have promoted evangelism in such a way that they only focus on getting somebody to simply pray a prayer for salvation and that's like the entire focus of outreach for them that's not a biblical approach so i don't know if you've encountered that and i don't necessarily want to name names but there are churches where they promote evangelism and the whole focus is how many people did you get to pray with you this week how many people did you get to walk through the the sinner's prayer And and there's an aggressive effort to go share the gospel and walk somebody through a prayer. And then there's virtually no follow-up that happens with those kind of people. That's not a biblical approach to evangelism. A biblical approach to evangelism is making disciples, yes, we want people to come to Christ, but also working with them to mature them, to bring them to a mature understanding of Christ and their responsibilities and obligations so that they obey him. So our focus in evangelism is not just simply getting someone to walk through a prayer, but getting someone to ultimately come to trust in Christ, genuinely submitting to him as Lord and living for him and helping them to walk with God on a daily basis. That's biblical outreach and discipleship we are interested both in the initial conversion but also the ongoing consecration they're walking with God on a daily basis we need to be involved in both and Paul we see this he is aggressive at sharing the gospel and trying to reach new people and yet he has a great burden for the Corinthian church which he helped establish because of his preaching and his work of discipleship with them he is deeply affected by what's going on in their lives. I I remember hearing early on in the ministry from a pastor who I worked with and I greatly respect. He talked about how people that you lead to Christ and um, that you work with in an ongoing way, he just described it like biblical terms. It's like having your own children. There is a natural affection and love for those people that is that are similar to what you go through in your own natural family and that's how it should be we should lovingly share the gospel with the intention of helping people to grow in christ and walk with him and not have this philosophy or approach of just 
trying to get someone to walk through a prayer that may or may not have been genuine and just thinking everything's going to be okay. No, we need to work to make and mature disciples. And that's what we see Paul doing here. So he alters his plans. He leaves what's going on in Troas. Now, I think it's important to understand Paul wasn't just being irresponsible here. He was part of a team that was involved in the work, and surely some of the team continued the work even though he had to leave. All right? So it's not just he totally abandoned this mission field, but for the time being, he needed to leave, and he goes and seeks to find Titus because he's worried about what's happened with Corinth. Now, interestingly, we don't read about Titus again until chapter 7. I think I mentioned to you when we started the book that this book is one of the most personal letters that Paul has written. Perhaps the only more personal letter that he wrote in the New Testament is the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is a very personal, direct uh, Paul to one person letter, but followed perhaps only by 2 Corinthians and how personal it is. So what we see sometimes is Paul will break off a topic that he's talking about and then come back to it later. And that's what we see in 7.5. If you were to look at 7.5, we see how Paul picks up what happened with Titus. It says in 7.5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. So that's the same thing he's talking about there. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted, he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul had this anxiety, this concern for the Corinthian believers, but we see how God allowed him to run into Titus at some point uh, in heading towards Macedonia, and he was therefore greatly comforted. But he had a great affection for the believers in Corinth. We also see as Paul, as he goes into verse 14, uh, we see that he has an appreciation. Uh, again, this is just the map you saw. But um, he has an appreciation for what God has done and is doing at the time he's writing through him and in his ministry. So we see an appreciation that Paul mentions in verse 14. Notice verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So Paul then shifts from the situation of anxiety and concern to focusing on an appreciation of God and the work that God is doing uh, in the ministry that Paul is involved in, as well as in his own individual life. So he reflects upon God's achievements of victory. He gives thanks. Uh, and, and we see in verse 14, he thanks God. And certainly it would seem that a part of that thanksgiving is related to what we read in chapter 7. He's thankful that though he was worried about them, God brought good news through Titus and therefore uh, he was rejoicing in that good news. But uh, we also notice how he is also rejoicing in how God gives victory in the work of the ministry that they're doing. Notice he talks here about triumph. Verse 14, he says, Who always leads us 
in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of knowledge. So what I would suggest to you here, he is talking about a concept common in the Roman culture. So in the Roman culture, when there would be a battle victory of significance, what would happen would be the general and a group of the army would come back into Rome and they would do like a parade of celebration for the victory that they had. So I believe I have a picture here for you that just kind of represents this idea. So you see in the center there, there's the uh, general or commander of the army. There's a group of army coming in. It's just a huge celebration. And I believe this is the picture Paul is using to talk about the work that Christ is doing through the apostles in the work of the ministry in spreading the gospel. It talks about aroma. And these kinds of celebrations, not only would there be cheering and celebration, there would also be there would also be captives. Some people would be taken captive and chained and marched along in the procession as an evidence of clear victory by defeating these enemies. There would also be um, fragrances, perfumes, aromas that would be part of the process as well. And this all is part of the picture that Paul is uh, referring to here and talking about this. It is a huge celebration of triumph that God has triumphed over sin. We understand that through the work of Christ and him dying on the cross and being raised. We have victory over sin. And But, but Paul is also drawing attention to the fact that God continues to give triumph and victory in the work that they're doing in the ministry. So Paul is drawing upon this imagery to describe what is going on. Notice a couple things before we move on about that. Number one, the victor is God. God is the champion. God is the hero. God is the one who is to be praised and celebrated. And Paul is drawing attention to God as the conqueror, the victor, the one to be praised. But also notice this includes a victory in the Christian life. We have victory over sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I believe the point he's then going on to make here is victory in the work of the ministry. And we see that by the activity that God is doing. So let's look at the activity first, and then we'll talk about the audiences next. What is it that God is doing? How is God working victoriously through the ministry of Paul and those that are sharing the gospel? Well, you see what he's doing. It says he is manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So what is it that God is doing? God is spreading the knowledge of himself. It says where? Every place. God is using Paul and these others who are sharing the gospel so that people would know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for them. So Paul is rejoicing in the victory of being able to take this message and how God is victoriously spreading this message throughout the known world. He is rejoicing that God is making the gospel message known. See, that's actually the content of what's being made known here. This knowledge of him, I believe, is a reference to the gospel. 
Paul and those traveling with him and working with him are sharing the gospel across the world, and many people are coming to know Jesus Christ through the work that they're doing. This is what God is doing, and God is using his people to spread this message. But let's notice the audience's responses. There's different responses that happen to this message, though. Because the message is going everywhere doesn't mean everybody's accepting it. Notice the different responses he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. So we see here the audience of this message is everyone, all people. But the responses to that message are different. To the unsaved, Paul says, it is a message from death to death. So again, picture that triumphal entry into the city of Rome, a general coming in. They have both soldiers who are loyal and fought with them and are rejoicing in victory, but you also have captives who are in chains, and it's a certain death that awaits them. And Paul is pointing out that the gospel message Though a message of hope and that everyone can have eternal life, ultimately there are some who reject it. And when they reject it, it is, a, it is a sign of death to death. They are already dead spiritually. They're already separated from God. And their hardening against the gospel is further evidence that if they don't repent, they will ultimately experience that separation from God eternally. So there are some who do not rejoice at this message and are not excited about it, and it is a bitter message to them because it is ultimately a message that they're rejecting and therefore will have evil consequences for them. But at the same time, there are also those who are saved, those who hear this message and respond to it, enjoy life. It is a message of life, and there is rejoicing, again, thinking of that picture of the triumph those that have been fighting alongside the general who's victorious rejoice in their victory and it is a sweet aroma a wonderful sense of good and celebration and i think it's good for us to understand that when we are aggressive and share the gospel though god does save some people there are going to be many who reject it we need to, to know that this is the reality of the response to the gospel. It divides. You remember that Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. There is division over Jesus Christ. Probably many of you have experienced that in your own families. If you've trusted Christ, you may be at odds with someone who's rejected Christ in your own family. There is division that takes place. There are different responses, and yet our obligation is to be faithful and continue to take that message, continue to be loyal, because we ultimately recognize we, having trusted Christ, are forgiven of our sins, and we're ultimately going to enjoy and celebrate in that final victory with Jesus Christ. But in the here and now, there are going to be people that don't respond, but yet we need to still share the news we need to continue to pray 
that maybe eventually they will re- open their eyes. They'll, they'll repent of their sin and come to trust in Christ. Paul was thanking God for his victory and rejoicing at God's victory in the ministry and how he was using him. But we also see Paul brings up a question here of ability. Look at the, the end of verse 16. He says, who is adequate for these things? There's a question of adequacy that Paul brings up here. And the idea of adequacy is that of being fit or being capable or sufficient. In other words, who is able to do this incredible task of taking the gospel message, of sharing the truth of Jesus Christ and all that he's done? Who is able to do that? Who is able to bear that responsibility? And the implied answer is no one. No one in and of themselves are able to do this work. Notice with me how Paul answers this question in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 3. Humanly speaking, nobody is able. However, God does equip his people to do it. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, not that we are adequate in, our, in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The implied answer is no one is capable except... God enable us to do it. And that's what Paul is saying. God has enabled him and his co-workers to do the work of the ministry, to do the work of sharing the gospel, to do the work of making and maturing disciples. And we also need to recognize we can't do this task ourselves either. And if you've tried and you've been aggressive with trying to share the gospel with other people, you've run into this, haven't you? I remember when I first got saved, I was, I was 19 years old, and I aggressively talked to lots of different family members to the point of annoying them repeatedly, mentioning things, calling people up on the phone, hey, aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so, and just sharing what's going on in my life and trying to uh, share the gospel with them. And you know what? I'm not sure any of them, even today, have yet responded to the gospel message. I can't make somebody believe. In fact, if I do, it's not actually a, general, a genuine conversion, right? I believe it was D.L. Moody. Have you heard that D.L. Moody story where he uh, runs into a, a, a drunk man uh, on the street and the drunk man says, Hey, D.L. Moody, I'm one of your converts. And D.L. Moody said, Well, you must have been because you're not the Lord's, right? There's, there's been no change in your life. There's no eagerness to serve the Lord, no faithfulness in being in church. You must have just responded humanly um, to my urging and not necessarily really repented and trusted in Christ. We cannot make people believe, and let's admit it, it's hard to be confrontational also, right? We need the strength of the Lord to carry out this work. And if anyone is going to be genuinely converted, he ultimately has to do it. 
it's not a task we can do on our own strength. It requires God's equipping. And also, uh, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 9, you know how our Lord tells us we should pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest, right? We need to pray that God raises up people. Not all of us can go to the othermost parts of the world. We individually cannot reach every country that hasn't been reached. But we need to pray that God will raise up workers and send them. But all of us should, and all of us, if we know Christ, can be involved in evangelism and discipleship. We should be seeking to be used, but recognizing it's a work of God for which we need his strength to do. And Paul recognized that. He was not able on his own. But we also see, lastly, there is accountability. There is accountability in preaching the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So we have just a few minutes, and I want to just uh, draw your attention to a few things here as we finish up. Number one, he is talking about selling the word of God. That sounds like a very sacrilegious idea, and yet it was a common practice in that day. There were people that would go around preaching for the purpose of just making money and didn't care about the accuracy of the message they, they, or they made up stuff for their own sake. And Paul's drawn attention to this, that he and his team are not like this. They're not peddling the word of God. It's not for sale. He's not just trying to make a buck off the preaching of God's word. So he's making a knock on his opponents here, and this was a common problem. But we also understand, if we were to look later, later in the chapter, for time's sake, I'll, I'll not read them, but if you were to look at chapter 11 and chapter 12, you will see that Paul refused to take money from the Corinthians. Paul was not after their money. He was not just a, a preacher for hire to just, to just make money. That's not why he was in it. He was faithful to God's word. He wasn't just selling his services. Now, Paul does point out, however, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, it's not wrong for a preacher of the gospel to earn his living from it. In fact, that, that is something he says should happen. Normally, someone who is preaching the gospel should earn his living from that work. But Paul was a special exception that he wasn't going to take money from them. He was a tent maker. We know he earned money on his own. And one of the reasons, I believe, was so that he could uh, not burden new churches getting started with the responsibility of providing for him. He provided for himself or had other churches that helped him in the work of the ministry. But he did not burden the Corinthians with this. He was not selling the word of God. We also see that he was sincere. Uh, this is the same word that we find in verse 12 of chapter 1. The idea of sincerity here is clearness. So the idea is it's see-through or transparent. Therefore, the implication is purity. He doesn't have evil motives for what he's doing in working with them. He is working from sincere motives, wanting what's 
good for them, wandering, wanting what honors God. And he also says he is sent by God. It says, as from God. He is operating as one who is sent from God. And this is the basic meaning of the word apostle. It means to be sent or one who is sent. Paul is specifically sent from God. The source of Paul's message was God. The source of Paul's strength was God. The subject of his message is God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul was sincere. He was sent from God. And notice, lastly, he recognized he was seen by God. In other words, he's accountable to God. It says, he speaks in Christ in the sight of God. Paul had recognition that what he was doing would be evaluated and judged ultimately by God. He was serving God, not man. He was accountable to God. And we also would do well to remember these things that in preaching the gospel, our goal is not to just make people happy with what we say to them. Our, our goal is to be faithful in communicating the gospel accurately so that God is pleased. The results belong to God. We share the gospel. We, we try to win people to Christ. We work with people to disciple them. But ultimately, we do that knowing we will answer to God for how we handle that. The individual we're working with will answer to God for how they respond. But we're accountable to God for our accuracy in communicating the message. The, our motivations and how we work with them. We are accountable to God for those things. So as we reflect upon this, I realize it was a lot. And we cover it pretty quick. But we see here Paul talks about the necessity of being a faithful messenger. We see how he is a good steward. He is an excellent example of advancing the gospel, having a deep affection for those he sees come to Christ. And he is appreciative and thankful for how God has worked in his life and is using him in the ministry. But he also recognizes the ability to do it comes from God, not from himself, and that ultimately he's going to answer to God for what he does. We would do well to remember these same things in how we go about sharing the gospel with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the example we have here in Paul. But ultimately we know, Father, you are the one that gives us strength. You are the one that gives us opportunity to share the gospel. You are the one that we're accountable to. Help us, Father, to be aggressive in trying to share the gospel with those around us. But help us to trust the results with you. Help us not to give up, but help us to be diligent in praying and witnessing. But help us also, Father, to focus on discipleship and encouraging fellow believers in the faith and being greatly burdened for how they are doing. Help us, Father, to rejoice in your goodness and your faithfulness. And help us to remember that none of this is possible in our own strength. This is your work. We do it empowered by you but not that we should be passive and not do anything help us to be aggressive but recognizing while doing it 
that we need your strength, we need your guidance, and ultimately, we cannot force anyone to come to trust you, but Father, help us to be faithful in sharing the message. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.